You're listening to Counsel That Cares, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's healthcare and life sciences team. With more than 400 attorneys practicing across the healthcare industry, members of our healthcare and life sciences team are on the leading edge of industry developments. This series serves as your personal checkup on the multifaceted playing field of healthcare law and business trends. Welcome to Council That Cares. This is Morgan Ribeiro, the host of the podcast and a director in the firm's healthcare section. Today, we are going to look at a hot topic in healthcare and one that is receiving a lot of attention, particularly amongst providers of healthcare services. Metapixels are a powerful tool to help online vendors reach people who have shown an interest in a product or service. And by identifying the user's Facebook or Instagram, this tracker can help target ads to people who have already shown an interest in a product. And this is relatively harmless if you're looking at things like clothes or skincare, things of the like. But in healthcare, this tracker can breach patient privacy if it's included on certain pages. So in today's conversation, we are going to look at and talk about a number of recent lawsuits involving metapixels and what's happening in these cases, what it means for our listeners, and much more. Joining me today are Paul Bond, a partner in Holland and Knight's data security and privacy practice, and Antonia Rego. Managing Director in JS Held's Global Investigations Practice. So Paul and Antonio, thank you for joining me today. So before we get started, I want to just maybe talk to each of you a little bit more and and share with our listeners more about your practice and your area of expertise. So Paul, um, can you tell us more about your practice and the work that you do in the healthcare space? Sure. No, I'm glad to. So I'm Paul Bond. I'm a partner in the Philadelphia office of Holland and Knight in our data strategy, security, and privacy group. We have essentially three types of work. We have compliance building in connection with policies, procedures, and training around everything from data incident response to employee training on monitoring to website privacy policies in terms of use. We have incident response where we deal with the house on fire incidents for the loss, theft, and misuse of personal information. And then lastly, we help defend class actions around personal data. In that course, we've defended about 150 class actions and major litigations all around the country relating to claims that, hey, why did you lose my data? Why did you have my data in the first place? What were you doing with my data? And I should be compensated for it. And so that's pretty much what we do. Great. Thank you. Very helpful. Antonio? I'm a managing director within JS Held's digital investigations and discovery practice. My focus is on data privacy, governance, and digital forensics broadly. I have over 20 years experience supporting organizations and law firms on matters involving both proactive and reactive needs. That could be internal assessments, compliance matters, or internal investigations, or for litigation involving analysis, expert reporting, and testimony. Great. Thank you. So to bring everyone up to speed on what is happening and what I mentioned in the introduction, on September 5th, anonymous plaintiffs alleged that at least 664 medical providers use pixel tracking technology on their websites and patient portals, which has allowed Meta to obtain patients' protected health information. And in a consolidated lawsuit, the plaintiffs alleged that Meta collected health information of people with Facebook accounts by installing pixels on the patient portals of their healthcare providers. And the plaintiffs also say that the tech giant was able to profit from the information by using it to deliver targeted ads. Meta's tried to dismiss the claims in a motion stating that the plaintiffs didn't provide enough evidence to establish that the company's intent was to collect their information. 
And ultimately, this motion was denied by a judge in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California in August, um, as he stated that the patients could pursue claims that Meta violated a federal wiretap law and a California privacy law. So this is just the latest in a series of lawsuits that we're seeing pop up involving medic pixels and healthcare providers. Paul or Antonio, um, whichever you wants to start, I'd love to hear from both of you on this, but anything notable that you'd like to share in terms of a summary of what's currently happening in the space? Yeah, so this case against Meta, alongside this case against Meta, is a series of over 100, probably over 200 actions in federal and state court that have been brought against healthcare providers of all sorts with respect to their use of online tracking technology. Most of the time, Meta isn't involved in those suits, but all of them savor the same types of causes of action and the same sort of claims. Generally speaking, their attempts to use wiretap acts under various state laws, most of which were brought about in the 60s and 70s to fight crime syndicates with respect to tapping phones, to take these into the digital age and to treat the fact that you went to a hospital's website, clicked to see their hours of operation, looked at the directions to the hospital, or did anything with respect to a hospital website to treat that as essentially an improper disclosure of information. Meta, in this case, was the direct target but almost always they are the indirect target with respect to these lawsuits. And the result in this case is pretty much parallel to what we've seen in the other cases. Uh, There's 75 federal court actions that we're tracking with respect to these types of claims that have been going on for the past two years. Of those 75, there've been a couple of settlements, a few partial decisions on the, on the motions, like the motion here, But almost all of the time, the cases have survived. In none of those cases has a motion to dismiss been granted for a defendant such that the case was completely over. These are continuing cases all around the country and not just for Meta. The only thing that I would add is, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of concern about how organizations may have their opt-outs, their privacy banners or disclosures set up. And that's a really important part, at least from, you know, my involvement in these types of matters and my, my company's involvement is more in a in sense of supporting Paul and, and his team and other attorneys and determining how an organization may be having their website set up, right? Uh, that's going to be an important part of it. And I think what's even more important right now in particular is how protected health information is being masked or anonymized or the lack thereof. And we'll touch on this a bit further down, but the specifics on how exactly it's being masked or hashed is another way it's usually described is is a pretty important part in light of these uh, recent HHS notifications in late 2022. Great. Okay. So why don't we take a pause here as, as we lead into another piece of our conversation, and that is, can you all define the difference between a pixel and a cookie? I think that that's a, an important distinction to make. Sure. I'm happy to to chime in on that. Uh, Cookies are essentially small text files generally located on user devices that store information on certain browser activity and can be remembered when revisiting a website. Cookies do not follow users across devices, however, and are primarily used to enhance the user experience as well as for certain marketing purposes. Whereas pixels, or more specifically tracking pixels, 
are bits of code placed on a website by the website owner or a third party. Google and Meta are two examples that tracks information about a user's interactions with the website, primarily used for marketing purposes. These are less easily disabled and can track users across devices and websites. Very helpful. Thank you. And that really leads into the next question. So for years, patients and healthcare companies have been wrestling with privacy issues relating to cookies, pixels, and other tracking technologies. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, um, Office of Civil Rights, OCR, which enforces Health Insurance and Portability Accountability Act, HIPAA, um, has not substantially involved itself in this debate up until somewhat recently. So in December of last year, without public comment, OCR came out with a bulletin that really will profoundly impact this conversation. Paul, I'd love to look to you first. Can you tell us more about what was included in this bulletin? So this bulletin that came out was guidance on third-party tracking from OCR. And essentially, they took a very broad view of the types of pages or services that implicate HIPAA requirements. For context, it's not unusual for there to be parts to a, the digital domains of a healthcare provider. So you can imagine kind of the first part of it is the public-facing website that anyone can go to, anyone can navigate around, and there's no requirement for you to authenticate yourself or log into anything. So that's something that the general public can go to to see, you know, they can go there to find a doctor, they can go there during COVID to learn more about recent research or tips. Employees can go there to figure out where potential employees for job opportunities. This is kind of the public website. But we've also all experienced, you know, when you want to access patient records, there's a portal from that public section to your records, to your, your electronic medical records. There's something that you have to log into, and it's provided by either the hospital or one of a number of third-party service providers that takes you into the patient portal that you know you set up providing lots of information, and they're really sure it's you. I think most of us expected that when it came to your interactions with your electronic medical records, your activity within that user-authenticated patient portal, that we were in HIPAA land. That's classic HIPAA stuff where the privacy and security rules would directly apply. I think what was surprising and to a certain extent unprecedented about the OCR opinion at the end of last year was that they applied the same view with respect to the first part, the public website. If you go to a healthcare provider's website, you are seeking healthcare. If you are using cookies or pixels on that site in such a way that will send even your IP address to that third-party service provider, and the fact that you were looking around any page on that public website, that that is potentially an impermissible disclosure of protected health information, and something that could subject you to serious penalties under HIPAA. They're applying that HIPAA model to everything on the hospital website, and they are saying it doesn't matter if Facebook doesn't automatically learn your name or healthcare condition or anything else. The fact that an IP address even goes to Facebook is enough for Facebook or Google or insert third party to figure out who you are and to link you with the fact that you're looking for healthcare information and essentially to implicate all of the regulatory apparatus of HIPAA. So it was a pretty exceptional decision, which left a lot of anxiety and concern for the hospitals and healthcare organizations 
as well as the public. We've heard a lot from healthcare organizations talking with patients about what is and isn't disclosed by third parties in the course of using normal tracking technology and helping them understand that just because there was this HIPAA directive and some follow-up enforcement letters, it's not a breach of electronic medical records. We're really talking about stuff on the periphery. Yeah, Paul, I mean, I think you, those are all very astute points. The, and what I'd also add is it almost assumes that it's always a patient logging into the websites when it can be a family member or a friend or even someone that could be not really affiliated or looking specifically for health information, could be someone for other reasons that's just curious about certain services. So I think that the fact that it's so broadly defined or all-encompassing is one of the key areas of concern and is one of the reasons why a lot of healthcare-related organizations are really reassessing and vetting and concerned about how they have their current configuration set up, among other you know, concerns, of course. Great. Well, I mean, there's a lot really packed into that that bulletin. And if you, you, you're talked a lot about HIPAA there, if HIPAA covered entities and business associates use tracking technology, what is this bulletin guiding them to do? I want to kind of jump into the more practical implications of this. Yeah. So, I mean, the, their first line implication is the block position is don't use these technologies unless. So, essentially, if HIPAA applies, then, and this is a disclosure of protected healthcare information, you're only allowed to disclose protected health information under a few circumstances. You can do it with the informed knowing consent of the patient. You can do it for certain other treatment-related purposes. You can do it in connection with a vendor with whom you have a, a certain type of agreement, a business associate agreement. Big picture, the options are don't use this third-party tracking technology, use third-party tracking technology, and limit or obscure the information that you're sending so that it's arguably not protected health information. Enter into a business associate agreement with the third party that you're sending the information to. You know, the other option is to get informed knowing consent, which is a very high standard from the individual patient. Antonio, is that generally the, the framework? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think those are some of the key areas. And, and, you know, we'll be sharing momentarily a couple of the more, we could get into some of the specifics from a, from a technology perspective and a website configuration perspective, or at least considerations for what could at least currently be considered potentially in violation. But I think you covered it all quite well, Paul. And, and there's one point that before we get too far, I don't want to, I don't want to miss. So when we look at what the definition of protected health information is, Part of it has to be it's personally identifying information. And, you know, there's been controversy, regulatory controversy, controversy in court over what's really personally identifying information. In HIPAA, there's a list of things that um, you have to take out of a data set to say that it's de-identified, not personally identifiable information. So you'd have to take out the name. You'd have to take out the social security number. You'd take, have to take out the address, the phone number including something called an IP address, which not everyone may be familiar with. Antonio, could you explain kind of what an IP address is and how it's linked to our online activity? Sure. So an IP address is essentially a unique identifier that's tied to a computer. And depending on how the header, well, oftentimes as part of the header information of a given URL and website, 
that detail is sometimes is typically included whenever you're visiting a website. So that IP address could tie you and your activities to your browsing sessions as well. So it's an added identifier that allows tracking tools to be able to have an additional piece of information, including potential geolocation. While it's not always very specific and targeted, it could, you know, it could vary depending on how focused the geolocation is, but it does indeed include that along with other potential identifying information. Yeah, I think that that's helpful to have that definition as well. And, you know, I think the other kind of specific piece of this is we look at the kind of the practical implications of this is how do privacy and security departments work with counsel? You know, a lot of counsel right now are really facing this, this new frontier, right? A lot of them did not get into this, you know, being a general counsel at a healthcare company, knowing the ins and outs of data privacy and security. And it's just such a new area. Um, and that partnership between I think privacy and security departments and you know chief chief information officers and you know all the folks that kind of live and breathe this every day. But how do they really work together to comply with this new guidance and ultimately mitigate litigation and regulatory risk? Sure, I could cover a few of these initially, and I, and then Paul could uh, chime in as well. Although I will say that he already touched on some of this already in his prior response, which is strongly consider removing certain tracking technology or limiting their placement on certain sensitive pages. So really understanding how you have your analytics tool set up, marketing analytics tool set up, and, and how they're configured, what type of information is potentially being sent to these third parties, that's, that's very important. You know, we, we talked about BAAs and ensuring that that is either signed by third parties or really revisiting the extent to which certain third parties refuse to sign those and whether or not it would make sense to no longer continue to uh, you know, have and utilize that tracking technology in those scenarios. Evaluating and improving governance over new websites and mobile apps for compliance purposes, including the hardening of procurement and vendor oversight programs and the development of rules of the road for healthcare information technology marketing and digital teams within an organization is very important. And another thing that is, again, heightened scrutiny now, and we talk about anonymization and masking of personal information, but that's that's really going to emphasize even more greatly now with some of the more recent guidance. So vetting the masking protocols for any transmission of personal information and making sure the ID masking is HIPAA compliant. So it's not enough to just necessarily involve cryptographic hashing because it, it can be decrypted. What it also needs, and this is, I believe, specifically called out as well, is including a secret key, which is essentially a password. So hashing without a secret key makes your data susceptible to a dictionary hack, where the attackers could use cross-referencing of data sets to identify the user, which of course would raise uh, all manner of PHI flags. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, working the technical side, working with the legal side is hugely important. And it's even useful, I think, to involve um, lit litigation counsel before there is litigation, um, if nothing else, to understand reports from the field about which kinds of healthcare entities are being targeted, why they're being targeted, and what's being said in the complaint. I think this is uh, one of those things where the, the word is getting out, for sure. But there's still a lot of healthcare organizations who are not, this is not top of their list of compliance concerns. 
And they may think we're not doing anything weird or funny with, you know, Facebook or third party track. And the answer really is you don't have to be. So the kind of thing that we're talking about, the, this Facebook and Google third party tracking, at one point, more than 90% of the, the top 100 healthcare providers were using these. They're not for any nefarious purpose. They're not just for even promotion. Uh, we've seen claims over cookies that are used for security purposes, claims over cookies that are used to to find broken links or to understand how people click around on a site. So this is very generic technology, widely used for these purposes. And so I think the risk awareness has to even flow down to that sort of plain vanilla technology. Is there anything that you all would want to note about um, just activity that we've seen related to the bulletin and, and what's you know resulted from it since December of last year? Since the December bulletin, we have seen a few uh, additional developments on the regulatory and legislative side. For example, on May 22nd of 2023, the Trade Association, AHA, the American Hospital Association, sent a letter to OCR on the HIPAA privacy rule online tracking guidance. And they objected to the guidance on behalf of the Trade Association, urged HHS to modify or rescind the guidance. They said, look, it's way too broad. Because again, what you're talking about in this guidance isn't just what's behind the patient portal, which we can all agree is protected health information. What you're talking about is the information that's available to the world, these web pages, the public web pages that are used by a variety of people who are not just patients, but can also be family members, employees, bots who are doing scraping, people who are looking at uh, researching medical conditions, people in the community, there's no reason to think that everyone who visits a hospital website is a hospital patient. Uh, and they also said, look, you're misunderstanding the technology. You know, under your reading of this rule, HHS, even, you know, information that is temporary, that doesn't really link to anyone in any permanent or, or, or reliable way would be considered protected health information. They say it's too much, you're penalizing the normal use of technology. Uh, but in July, the FTC and OCR sent warning letters to 130 hospitals, seeming to double down on their positions in the bulletin and sent out a joint letter saying, you know, hey, we mean it. We noticed that your hospitals are or have been using some of this technology. We want to draw your attention to the, uh, the guidance that we previously issued and you continue with the use of this technology at your risk. In September, the AHA sent a letter to the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, uh, essentially urging HIPAA to be amended and or for this guidance to be rescinded. But so far, the guidance the HHS gave in December is still on the books. They are still uh, open to enforcement of it. And I, I would say seem to be moving from education mode to warning mode to investigation mode, I assume, and the lawsuits, the class action lawsuits keep on piling in. Antonio, anything you want to add there? The only thing that I would add is, is from our own experience, all the things that Paul touched on has led to increased attention and uh, outreach from healthcare organizations to us to help 
in an expedited fashion, frankly, in, in helping them with their guidance on how their websites are currently set up, what their potential concerns are, doing an assessment and vetting of the risk profiles that, that may be in play, whether or not they have these third-party tools set up properly. You know, I touched on earlier, and Paul mentioned it again very astutely about the other entities that may be visiting a website. And the bots example is a very good one, right? Because that's a very routine process that seems to be wholly ignored as part of this updated guidance. But I think right now, because of the uptick in investigation and litigation, it's creating a lot of concern among key stakeholders and organizations. And, you know, while that is an area that that we can advise on and provide recommendations. It's also something that, at least at current pace, may not be sustainable long-term. It's easy to fall into extremes when considering this issue. Now, I think the OCR position from December of 2022 is one level of extreme, considering essentially any click anywhere on a hospital website, potentially PHI. And, you know, there's the other extreme, which is not knowing about or ignoring some issues uh, in connection with data transfer. And then I think most people are aiming for that middle of the road, which is understanding the importance of securing and uh, keeping confidential access to electronic medical records. And then looking at their website with kind of a heat map in mind to understand, okay, here are the risk factors for the public website, including, for example, proximity to the patient portal. Is this something that leads, even if it's not where you sign in yet, this is something that leads to where you sign in? That seems more dangerous than directions to parking or, you know, something that where you're specifically searching uh, a particular condition or looking for a particular type of doctor. Those things are, you know, part of the heat map that then you can decide to, you know, reduce tracking on those, on those uh, red zones or enter into BAAs or, or do something else. We've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the OCR and the, and the bulletin that um, came out last December. Beyond that, the FTC has also come out with some, some decisions and given some attention to this topic. And we actually recently covered this in a podcast um, with Holland and Knight's Ashley Thomas. But I'm curious just to get thoughts from both of you on recent enforcement activity by the FTC on this issue. There's a limit to how much I can comment on that, other than to say uh, the FTC is very serious about uh, this issue. They have, for years, been gearing up their technological sophistication and independent ability to test and verify what companies are saying uh, about their uh, the privacy practices, to test wh whatever they're not saying. And they do seem to be, again, uh, as with many branches of the government, moving from a long education period into more of an enforcement mode. Yeah, and I would just briefly add that as far as organizations, the, the potential negative impact to their brand is, is quite notable and also a big influencer in, in how they may choose to proceed or their considerations, right? Negative news, any sort of indication of litigation, those are all things that could potentially dramatically negatively impact the brand. And then, of course, you know, those organizations that uh, have cyber insurance panels and the impact that that would have on various types of cybersecurity-related insurance that they have in play. So 
you know, these are all things that absolutely have a, a, a pretty dramatic impact potentially on, on an organization's uh, thinking and procedural internally on how they choose to apply their strategy for these types of news items. Yeah, and I would add, you know, although for sure their licensure and their status as a regulated entity is in the full position, close behind is litigation uh, liability, the risk of liability. Uh, and I said, we've been tracking all these suits and there haven't been so far, you know, multi-billion dollar, multi, you know, hundreds of millions of dollar jackpots, but the cases are still in progression. And what plaintiffs threaten, what they, you know, uh, what they demand when they file their complaint is they say, look, you violated this state wiretap law. We dispute that. The state wiretap law uh, provides for $100 per day or $1,000, $10,000, whichever is greater, uh, depending on the state. So potentially $10,000 times your 2 million visitors hundred dollars per day times two or three years times your millions of visitors. And the, the, the money becomes cartoonishly large really quick. Uh, and um, until some of these suits are, are batted down uh, one way or another, that risk is going to be something that's it's difficult for institutions to quantify realistically, and it's difficult for them to work through. You're looking at OCR, FTC, SEC, other regulators have inserted themselves into this conversation and issued guidance on the topic. We've talked about some of the negative um, you know, impact of non-compliance with the guidelines, but anything else, Antonio, that you might note here? I mean, I think other than the key issues that I referenced, just with respect to the impact to organizations and their internal infrastructure, and this is something that we'll touch on towards the tail end, is, is really just how they handle these things and the extent of attention, and Paul already touched on this, because it's an important point, is you know determining the extent by which they need to focus their attention on this as an organization. And a lot of this, of course, will depend on how confident they are in their risk posture and their privacy-related guidelines internally, the extent to which they may or may not have something formal in place, uh, and, and again, we'll we'll touch on some recommended measures later on. But um, I think the key factor here is just there is a sense, depending on the organization, that there's a little bit of scrambling about how to deal with it internally and how to manage their resources internally and how much attention they should be focused on to deal with these issues. As you know, the news tends to increase in frequency as far as uh, litigation and related actions. And another another consideration here is trust. You know, trust is the currency of being a healthcare provider, especially these days. And this is one more thing for patients to worry about. And so to be able to quickly and easily explain how you're keeping them safe and their information private uh, is only going to help you fulfill your mission. Okay, so if you are faced with a class action, um, are there certain things, recommended steps that counsel and others at a, at a healthcare organization should be considering as far as data preservation or um, analysis measures? Sure, I could touch on that initially. And of course, a lot of this, as far as broadly speaking, you know, my firm's involvement when it comes to these types of scenarios will, of course, often be on behalf of counsel. 
So to certainly varying degrees, we would be partnering with the law firm and helping to determine and the internal key stakeholders within the organization as well. So the methods will vary a bit depending on an organization's environment and the infrastructure and legal strategy, but a number of key steps involve, in the first instance, defensible capture of website URLs, including the underlying HTML and JavaScript code, right? That's that's behind the front-facing pages of these URLs. That could be of critical importance for a litigation. Exporting the organization's code base whenever applicable. Now, as an example, we oftentimes come across organizations that store customized edits to code to the pixel code or the JavaScript on Microsoft Visual Studio, for example, which is helpful as we can also export edits and comments alongside the code syntax that could help inform some of the reporting or assessment of what's being done behind the scenes, so to speak. Replication and analysis of pixel-related code firings that are triggered by a user's clicking on various sections on the website. You know, this particular step should ideally be performed in a test or pre-production environment. And what it generally involves is dummy information or, or created scenarios where there's basically a script that we develop where you, where we set up similar type of click-throughs that a user would uh, undertake, including logging into a portal using, you know, temporary credentials, again, to replicate the user experience environment. And then after which we were able to capture that in a sort of containerized format that we could then analyze and then as needed report on. Uh, this also includes looking at the analytics dashboards that are in place by these third parties. Uh, one example could be Google Tag Manager, right? That typically includes a lot of metrics and information about what's happening, how is it currently configured, and when you're clicking through these things, uh, these websites, these uh, you know hyperlinks, what's actually potentially going to these third parties? Is it being used for retargeting, for example? So again, all of that information after the analysis is then could be presented in, and oftentimes is presented in a formal report and, and submitted to counsel, which in turn can be utilized as part of the, the litigation. But you know, one of the most important things throughout this entire process is really understanding, and again, we've said this a few times in this podcast, but understanding how current ad tech is set up on a given website, uh, as well as the extent proper masking and anonymization of information and disclosures, as well as opt-outs in related type of options are configured or not by an organization's website or website managers. No, that's really well put. And obviously, we we rely on uh, our trusted vendors for a lot of this legwork. I will say part of what we do uh, when there is a suit, in addition to the preservation of first-party data, Uh, There's the issue of reaching out to third parties who have assisted with the placement of ad tech. So if your hospital or healthcare organization relies on third-party marketing companies, as many do, and they have the controls or they have the records, you need to make sure that those are being preserved. And then I think the, uh, in addition to preservation, the other kind of day one thing that we're thinking about is how, what changes do we want to make? to the website now in terms of presentation policies, terms, or usement of the tech, because 
what happens when somebody files a class action over one of these things is that you flip from a situation where they say you should have known XYZ was happening to them saying, you know, I put you on notice. And so, you know, if there's a feeling that any of the points made in the complaint is valid, you know, now's the time to shore things up and have confidence moving forward. Great. Well, and I think, you know, we've, we've again, we've touched on some of this already, but I think just maybe to dive into some more specifics on any additional recommendations that either of you might have for organizations that want to, you know, proactively be preparing for this, this new world um, or otherwise, you know, how to best position their organization kind of after a class action. So just curious if you all have any additional tips or guidance and, and maybe more specifics on how healthcare providers need to be thinking about this. Well, I, I could I could start and I'm sure Paul will have added comments too, but uh, and, and some of these are recurring themes that we we hinted at or alluded to earlier. But, um, you know, the healthcare marketing teams and their vendors need to keep in regular contact with legal compliance, privacy, IT teams, you know, all the internal key stakeholders about the potential implications for HIPAA violations due to the deployment of tracking tech tools from third parties. Uh, and some of the ways that could be done is setting up internal working groups or committees where there's regular meetings to establish proper internal communications across key stakeholders and compliance, privacy, and, and the website managers. Uh, some companies are now requiring pre-approval prior to the installation or deployment of certain ad tech or tracking technology. And as well as, you know, we touched on this already, and it's worth underscoring again, is aiming to have these third parties sign BAAs prior to utilizing any of these tracking tools. Now, you know, Meta and Google are two examples of organizations that will not uh, sign BAAs, or at least they've indicated that they wouldn't. So that's obviously something that, that factors into the decision-making process. And then also internal training on website usage. I, you know, website managers need to be aware of the changes in definitions of what's deemed personal information through these new regulations, case law, and regulator guidance. I'll also just very briefly add that we sometimes help organizations by conducting reverse pen testing, where we could identify and flesh out what sort of information is leaving an organization as far as potential PII or PHI. Uh, so that, that could be a different, uh, among other steps that can be taken, but that's something that's helped at times with uh, trying to identify information that the administrators and managers may not be aware is leaving the organization that could be in violation. Yeah, and that's that's absolutely critical. I mean, you have to start from having a realistic understanding of the inventory of ad tech that's loaded onto your digital domains, both websites and apps, which are starting to come into this in the litigation, and where that information is going. And I can't tell you how many times after a client has been sued, they say about a particular piece of ad tech, I didn't know we had that there. I didn't know. Uh, there's no reason for us to have continued to do that. We weren't doing anything with the data. But it is just so easy to keep piling on cookies and pixels and trackers on pilot projects, on old disused websites, on tons of things that there's no current need for. You could get rid of tomorrow if you knew you had it. Uh, so doing, doing a complete data inventory, doing a review of your disclosures, 
both your privacy policy banners, like privacy cookie banners and consent banners and keeping track of consent and uh, making sure that people you know understand what it is that you're doing and have agreed to it. Uh, I'd also say taking a look at terms of use for dispute resolution. So I know uh, this is a sensitive issue and it's not always what a healthcare institution uh, wants to do in terms of its terms, but it is entirely legal uh, and possible to say on your website, hey, if you sue me, you've got to sue us in our hometown. If you sue us, it's got to be one-on-one, not a class action. If you sue us, you know, it has to meet these requirements, including talking to us first. These are things that any healthcare institution anywhere can put on their website now and, um, you know, will be binding for anyone who then uses the website or app. So, you know, those are some preventative or at least foresighted things that they can try. Very helpful. Anything else that you guys want to add? No, I think this will be uh, this is a great conversation. Uh, thanks for having us. And I think this will be a spot to continue to watch as we move forward. Yeah, likewise. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to Council That Cares. For more information on Holland and Knight's healthcare and life sciences team, please visit hklaw.com forward slash healthcare.